ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. This series, uh, titled I Will, The Faithfulness of God in the Life of Abraham, is going to be from Genesis 12 to 25. However, in order to get into 12, well, we need to finish up 11, okay? So we're going to start in chapter 11. And as we do, just the song that we just sang, that last chorus, Whatever comes my way, God, I'll trust you. If that were to prove true, and something were to come our way, and we would find it, uh, find that we trusted him through that, who would deserve the honor and the glory and praise for that? Is it because I dug down deep into the depths of my soul and found some greatness to trust in the Lord God? Or would it be because every piece of my life is in his hands, including my trust? Right? The praise goes to him. The praise goes to him. Uh, He's the one who works in us in that way. We're going to see that today in uh, the book of Genesis. So, as we jump back into this book, let's take a few minutes to remember what we've seen thus far, okay? From a more historical uh, narrative perspective, obviously, first in Genesis we had creation. And we saw in creation from the text, even in the Hebrew, it makes very much sense to believe that God created everything in six days and rest on the seventh, literal uh, days. God saw that it was also not good for man to be alone, and God made woman and established there in the garden marriage, uh, one man and one woman. We saw also that Adam and Eve were perfect originally in innocence and had fellowship with God, their creator and Lord. But then the fall, then the fall. Remember, Satan tempted Eve and Adam, who it says was with her, and they desired to be their own gods. Remember, Satan wanted to be like the most high God, and he gave the very same temptation to Adam and Eve. And so they sinned, and that sin brought on God's curse. God's mercy, though, and his grace brought about the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, as we see in the first revealings there in Genesis 3 of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first promises even there in the garden after the fall. Later on, we saw the flood. Because of the great sin in the earth, in the hearts, the lives of mankind, God judged the entire world through a flood, a worldwide flood. Every land creature and human being died except for what God allowed on the ark, in the ark of safety. Those people being Noah, remember his wife, and their three sons and daughters-in-law. These people were then commanded, after they got off the ark, they were commanded to be fruitful and multiply and spread over all the earth, right? Remember that? But did they do that? Not right away. They didn't want to do that. They didn't want to spread out everywhere. So they decided to make a name for themselves to replace the authority of God, whether that be another God or whether it be their own will, their own desire to make a name for themselves of greatness so that they wouldn't have to obey the command of God. That was their desire. And through that came the Tower of Babel. And remember, in the course of their building, God said, Oh, no, you don't. (laughs) And confounded their language, as it says, creating through that act uh, the first distinctions of people groups. Uh, The peoples, the nations of the earth started to spread out and form. Uh, The descendants of Shem, 
uh, one of Noah's sons, Noah and his wife's sons, uh, stayed primarily in the Middle East. That's where those peoples uh, landed, uh, including the family of a man named Abram. So now let's read about this family in Genesis 11, starting in verse 27. It says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Now as we read through this, we're going to see a theme here, okay? You're going to find it. It's not going to be hard to find it. The generations of Terah. And by the way, Terah's name is related to the word for the moon. The moon. Okay, Terah fathered Abram. Abram's name means exalted to his father. Or his father is exalted. Uh, probably a name that signified noble birth. His name basically means my dad is worthy of exaltation. Okay? Um, so that's Terah. Okay? Terah's, that was a really kind name he gave to his son, isn't it? Now, the, also Nahor, it says, and Haran. Uh, Haran shared his name with one of the regional centers for worship of a god named, a little g-god, false one, named Nana or Nana, or whatever. N-A-N-N-A would be the English way to spell that. And he was the moon god. So that's what Haran's name came from. And it says, Then Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was the home of a massive ziggurat, a giant temple, okay? And that temple was for the purpose of worship of, can you guess who? The moon god. Okay, that was all centered, headquartered in Ur. Uh, the top of which on that cigarette was the most sacred. It was called the Silver Room. When they excavated in front of everything, they called it the Silver Room, where, among other things, in their worship of this moon god, human sacrifices were conducted. Verse 29, Abraham, or Abram, sorry. If I say Abraham or Abram, just remember that's the same guy, okay? <laughs> Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And Sarai's name was equivalent to the name of the wife of the moon god. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. And this was the name for the daughter of the moon god. The daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. That's going to come up later. She had no child. Verse 31 says, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, remember, remember what happens in Haran, moon god worship. They settled there. Uh, the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Did you catch a theme? In that little genealogy there, what did we just learn about Abram and his family? And we learn exactly what it also says in Joshua 24, verse 2, when they're recounting to Israel where they came from. It says in Joshua 24, 2, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers, Israel, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, and he names names, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they, your fathers, all these guys, served other gods. What was Abram and his family into as far as their religion was concerned? They were worshipers of a false god. And in their position of nobility, they weren't just there and a part of it. They would have been setting the example 
and leading the way. Uh, This can be a tough bit of information to take hold of. Uh, But as we consider the fact that Abram and his entire family were deep into pagan living and moon god worship, even human sacrifices, we need to remember a couple things. So here's three truths that will serve us very, very well as we embark on this study of the life of Abram or Abraham. Number one, the Bible, this is amazing and so good, the Bible is accurate and the Bible is honest. Realize how important that is? The Bible is accurate and honest. The Bible doesn't bring up Abraham and and lie about how great he was so that we can better understand in our own sinful minds why God would choose a guy like him to be the father of Israel. Does it make sense? We would think, okay, Abraham must have been a pretty awesome guy for God to say, okay, you're the one. But that's not at all how that went. Uh, The fact that the Bible is honest about who Abraham was should give us confidence in the truthfulness, the accuracy, the authenticity of all that the Bible says and teaches us. The Bible doesn't cut corners that way. The Bible tells us the way it was. It doesn't hide those things from us. And that's amazing. So the Bible is accurate and honest. Uh, When we meet people, think about this. When we meet people, what do we tend to do with them first? Have you ever walked up to somebody and said, okay, let me tell you all the reasons why I'm not great. Kids, when you go to a new school or you go to school for the first time in the fall, do you say, man, I really struggled with all these things this summer? Or or whatever shortcomings you can think of, whatever they may be, is that what we tell people first when you go on your first date? What do you do? Do you try to convince that person to go on another date with you? Or do you tell them all the bad stuff and get it out of the way? Generally, we tend to tell the good stuff, right? What did the Bible just do? What is the first thing we hear about Abram and his family? That they're pagans, worshiping a false god. The Bible is accurate and honest. Number two, Abram was a sinner who was saved by grace. Right? Abram was a sinner who was saved by grace. Did you know that God never looked down on the earth and said, Whoa, look at Andy Molyneux. He is so amazing. He's so amazing. It would be great if I could get him on my team. Oh, things would be so much better. Never happened. Amen? (laughs) Never happened. Never happened. And the same thing is true for you. And the same thing was true of Abram. What does Romans 3 say? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Uh, This includes everyone, right? Outside of Christ, everyone. Is Abraham a part of everyone? Well, of course he is. And he was still worshiping the moon god into his 60s or even his 70s. We'll find out later he was 75 when he first entered into Canaan. This was not something Abram was just doing as a little boy because his parents took him to that church. This is Abraham well into his adulthood. Well into it. Going this way and doing these things, certainly of his own volition and will. God did not commence this part of history as we look into Genesis 12 because he finally found a man worthy of the role. God instead moved forward with his grand, sovereign plan of redemption because it was his perfect will 
and his perfect timing to do so. And he chose Abram, the moon god worshiper, from Ur to do it. God saves and uses sinners. Praise God. It is so critically important that we remember this fact because if we're not careful, we'll start to worship Abraham and not the God of Abraham. We cannot preach from the pulpit or teach our children in Sunday school class to simply be like Abraham. We cannot do that. We cannot preach that way. We cannot teach that way. If we make Abraham to be out to be this otherworldly superhero figure who was so amazing and make these chapters in Genesis all about him, then we will only nurture in our own hearts and in the hearts of our children the pride that says, I can do this. And I can do this on my own. In making Genesis 12 through 25 all about Abraham, what we're really doing is making Genesis 12 through 25 all about me. All about us. Abraham did it, and so can you. Get your act together, kids. Abraham did it. And that can't be. That thinking breeds legalism. Phariseeism. It breeds false conversions. False growth. And then failure. When it doesn't work and heartbreak, and bitterness. And bitter against what? The church? Against God? Or a false representation of it and of him? Did Abraham do some good stuff? Sure. Yes. And we'll see that. But why? And how? And that brings up this third important truth. Number three, God is the hero. (laughs) Who's the hero of the Bible? God. God is the hero. Abram, the moon god worshiper, became Abraham, the father of the people of God, because God. God is merciful. He did not give Abram what he deserved. He's merciful. God is gracious. He gave Abram what he could never have earned. God interrupted Abram's hell-bound existence and said, You are mine. You will be blessed. Get up and go. (laughs) That's what God did. And all of a sudden, Abram believes and starts, not perfectly, but starts obeying God. That's a change. That's a miracle. Yeah? It's a miracle. Only God could do that in a man's heart, in Abram's heart, and in mine and in yours. Where did moon god worshiper Abraham get the idea and the courage to do such a thing? It was because of God's grace. God's grace changed him and was changing him. So God is merciful. God is gracious. We know also from this account and others that God is patient and long-suffering. Abraham messed up plenty. And we'll see that as we go through. But, number four, God is faithful. God is faithful. Everything that God promised to Abram came to pass. Including our part. Where God promised all of the nations being blessed through him. That's us. That happened with us. God is faithful. God is faithful. Everything that God promised happened because God is faithful. Now, with all of that in mind... Let's now move forward into chapter 12. 
Okay, This first verse actually takes us back to Ur. Remember, Abram spent time in Haran before going down into Canaan. So just to give a little geographical reference, I'll try to do it backwards because you're looking at me from this direction. Okay, the Middle East. There you go. Visualize it. I need one of those movie things like doo-doo and have a little map pop up in front of me. Ur is in modern-day Iraq. Okay? Modern-day Iraq. And the Fertile Crescent, you've heard of the Fertile Crescent maybe in the Middle East, between Iraq and where I think of like even Baghdad and stuff like that, although that's very desert-like, used to be very fertile along the Tigris and Euphrates in that area. If you would shoot straight um, west from that to the Mediterranean Sea, desert. Bad idea, okay? So they would follow the line of the rivers and then come down the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, the Fertile Crescent. It was fertile land, okay? So Ur's down here in Iraq. They'd go north, west. Haran was north of where Israel is, and then they went eventually south to Canaan. You following that? Can you see it in your mind? If not, Google it later, okay? You can Google that later. God says this, verse 1 of chapter 12 and following, when Abram is still in Ur, okay? And so Abram, the hearer of this, at this moment in his in God's intervention, goes from moon god worshiper Abram to God follower Abram. Okay, this is the moment. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Notice the movement from larger to smaller units. Each one's certainly more difficult for Abram to wrap his mind around and then to leave behind. From country and nation to the people, the community that he was within, his culture, to his own family, his father's household. Uh, Also, when Abram was in Ur and when he was in Haran, God didn't tell him We'll see, God did not tell him where the land was to which he was going to go. God just told him to go. It wasn't until Abram got into Canaan that God revealed the location of his command and promise. So what God's saying here to Abram is more, more leaving than it is going. Does that make sense? Abram ended up first leaving his country. In the same order here. He leaves his country. He leaves his people. Then in Haran, he leaves the rest of his family except for those that went with him because they decided to go with him and where he was going and with the God that he was following. Okay? Step by step, he believed God and then progressively he obeyed. He had to renounce his old life as he embraced God and the promises of God. That's repentance. Abraham ceased to be Abram, the moon god worshiper, because he started to follow God. There was a change in him. That's repentance. That is uh, progressive sanctification. Faith results in progressive change and obedience. Okay, then the promise continues. Verse 2. I will make, it says, I will make of you a great nation. Remember, Sarai was barren. And God didn't just say family. He said a nation. That might have been hard to believe. Then I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. So we say, take that Tower of Babel builders. They desired to make a name for themselves of their own doing and for their own glory, but it doesn't work that way. 
And now God is going to make Abraham's name great for his own, for God's own glory. Verse 3 says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Notice all the I wills, by the way. Who's doing all the work here? Who is the I of the I will? It's the great I am, right? God is the one that's doing all this. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. There is blessing for those who bless Abram, and there is curse for those who curse Abram. Is that what it says? And the actual answer there is no. No. The curse is for anyone who disdains, who makes light of, who even just disrespects Abram. If anyone was to treat Abram lightly, God would be against them, much to their detriment and dismay. And we're going to see that happening as we get into the second half of chapter 12 next week. Okay, some, some have taken this part, the blessing and the cursing. Some have taken this part of the promise and placed it on all of us as well. Uh, meaning this, those who bless me will be blessed because I'm a Christian, right? And I'm a part of the church and I'm, you know, by faith of the seed of Abraham. So those who bless me will be blessed and those who curse me or dis- dishonor me will be cursed. And as nice as that might sound, uh, that's not actually good Bible reading, okay? This is God's promise to whom? Abram. It's not God's promise to us. Okay, prove it. Okay. Are you going to be the father or mother of a great nation? I mean, if you want that part of the promise, there's the rest of it too, right? (laughs) Are you going to have your own land for that nation to dwell in? And I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but is the Messiah going to come through your lineage? Those things can't be true of us, right? Uh, Realize this too. Abram did not ask God for these blessings. God didn't come and say these things to Abram because he was in earth saying, Oh God, please bless me. He wasn't even thinking about that. That wasn't on the radar. God showed up. God showed up. Okay? We, we can't, we have to be careful Christians. We can't pick the parts we like and say, Hey, I want it on that too. I, I want that part. Okay? Plus, we aren't, think about this now, we aren't to hope for the cursing of anyone anyways. Why would that promise, that part of the promise, sound so good to us? Why? It'd probably be a good time to ask ourselves, if that's there, why exactly am I wishing for the cursing of people? And how does that line up with things like turn the other cheek? Or even more so, God saying, Jesus saying, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. That's what Christ has called us to So we aren't to hope for the cursing of those who disdain us. We are to preach the gospel to the world and to make disciples. Okay? Then the final portion of God's promise in this passage, at the end of verse 3, it says this, And in you, he's talking to Abram, And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. there's, There's two thoughts in the meaning of this part of the blessing. Number one, the idea that people in the future would bless each other in Abraham's name. And by that I mean this. Uh, like when Boaz, uh, when Boaz marries Ruth, or at least gets the legal precedent to do so in Ruth chapter 4, the people of Bethlehem who are there witnessing this event declare a blessing on them. They, they state a blessing on them, and they say, May the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Okay, they weren't asking for the, the friction and the fighting between the two of them, right? They were saying, boy, those two ladies had a lot of babies. 
may Ruth be as fruitful as Rachel and Leah and have lots of babies. That's what they were, they were conferring a blessing on them by the name of others who were blessed in a previous and a similar way. Does that make sense? And so people think maybe the idea is that people would say something like, may God grant you land and, and grant you uh, possessions uh, and, and give, give to you as he did to Abraham. Does that make sense? That kind of a blessing. Now here's option number two. The other idea is that Abraham, from Abraham, there would be a blessing that would impact all the peoples of the earth. Namely, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, when God reiterates the blessing and and makes the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 22 and again in Genesis 26, God says this. First, in 22, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then in 26, in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Those two to each other and then also to this in Genesis 12. Now, in Acts 3, Peter says... And Luke records in Galatians 3, Paul writes, they confirm that this part of the covenant was fulfilled in Christ. So the New Testament answers the question. You know the best way to interpret the Bible? With the Bible. Okay? You and I uh, and all those who have faith in Jesus Christ, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, believing in Christ's finished work for us on the cross, are those who are blessed because of the seed of Abraham, through the offspring of Abraham. And it makes sense to me then, it makes sense to you, to interpret this passage the same as the apostles did. Okay, Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. So, God gives moon god worshiper Abraham from Ur this command and this promise. And what did Abraham do? What did Abram do? He believed. And then so guess what he did? Because God gave him faith and he believed. Guess what he did? Verse 4 says, so Abram went. It resulted in action, didn't it? Abram went as the Lord had told him. And and Lot went with him. So meaning, Lot is leaving behind Haran, uh, uh, an area center of moon god worship, knowing that Abram has nothing more to do with that. So in the New Testament, when it talks about righteous Lot, and we're like, Lot, really? (laughs) There's a time there where Lot chooses to go the way that Abraham is going, okay? So Lot's in on that as well. Uh, Verse 5, And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Remember, God hasn't told them that's where it is yet. He's just going. A A couple things to note here. And it said that in verse 4, that Abram was 75 years old when he went into Canaan. 75. The life he lived before God ever showed up on his radar was well, was, uh, lived well into his adult years. And the people. It says here the people that he had acquired. What does that mean? Okay, the people that he had acquired in Haran. It could mean a couple different things. Number one, uh, these people were certainly servants. They were. They worked for Abram. But also, in the language, there's an idea that they could be converts. Uh, meaning that some, some people here in the Hebrew, they think that this phrase is referring more to the group being a growing contingent of people who are joining together with Abram in following the God that called him. Okay? I'm not 100% sure on that. I'll just tell you that right now, okay? Uh, but the idea of that would be that Abram, being probably a wealthy man, 
acquiring more wealth in Haran. He has a bunch of people working for him. Uh, I don't know how much of that is servanthood on the spectrum of servanthood to slavery, right? There's that in the Old Testament, and we need to talk about that as we move forward. But also, these people are coming into Abram's household, and they know where he's going, and he is going to build altars and serve the Lord. Did they also say, I want to go with you in a sense of evangelism? and growing in this belief in the God who had called Abram. It's one, it's for sure one of them, could be both. Could be both. Okay, at the end of verse 5 it says this, When they came to the land of Canaan, okay, so now they're in the land, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, uh, to the oak of Morah. And the word Morah means oracle or soothsayer. The Canaanites in their own pagan religion would sit and listen to the rustling of the leaves on this oak tree to hear from their God. That's what's happening at this place, okay? Uh, At that time, it says the Canaanites were in the land. That's a problem. (laughs) And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So, good news. Good news. God shows up, appears to Abram and says, this is the place I was telling you about. You're here. Bad news, there's people there already. (laughs) That's an issue that we'll have to come back to later, okay? So, Abram, what does he do in response? He built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse 8 says, From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel. Uh, Bethel means the house of El. And El is a word that can mean God in Hebrew. It means God in Hebrew. But it was the uh, proper name that the Canaanites had given to theirs. So it doesn't mean the house of the God of the Bible yet. It means the house of... El, the god of the Canaanites, a false god. Okay? And he pitched his tent there uh, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar. So a second time he built an altar to the Lord. And that in, the, in your Old Testament, you see that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Just to make sure you know that in the midst of former worship of the moon god, in the midst of the Canaanite worship of El, Abram is making very clear who it is he's worshiping. And the people around him who are seeing this have to know this. They have to see this. And then it says in verse 9, Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb, which that word in Hebrew means the south. Okay, you know, like when we say we're going to go up north, or we say, I'm so tired of this winter, I'm moving south. Okay, the, the Jewish people do the same thing. The, the region of the Negev in Israel, that word literally means south. So think about this. Abram comes from Haran, which is north of Canaan, north of Israel, and he starts journeying south. And he crosses into Canaan, and he continues to move south. And God is saying, I'm giving you this land. And he goes all the way down into uh, the south of Israel. In a sense, um, not in battle, right? But in a sense, uh, the picture there is Abram claiming the land that God's promising to him and to the people of Israel. That's happening in this passage. Okay? So Abram now knows that he's in the land that God had promised. And the people he finds there are, of course, we saw pagans too. But just like the people in Haran that Abram met, uh, these Canaanites are being exposed now to the true God as Abram builds altars and calls upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Uh, Notice that Abram never builds a house for himself. He always pitched tents. 
but he builds altars, places of worship. He leaves more permanent structures behind that point people to the Lord. And what Abram leaves behind when he moves on points people not to him, but to the God that called him. Abram is now publicly living out his faith before the people of the land. Okay? So God, as we look back at this passage, God gave Abram the gift of faith. God intervened, interrupted, broke in, and gives Abram this gift of faith. And in this passage, we can notice that that faith produced belief in the word of God. Abraham believed. It produced belief in the word of God. That faith also resulted in Abram's willingness to step out in obedience. He left. He went. He obeyed. That faith also resulted in worship. Abram built altars and worshipped the Lord in the midst of a people who did not even know who he was. Which means that faith also produced witness. Abram's public worship of the Lord pointed people to the Lord. Both in his testimony in Haran and now in his worship in Canaan. Faith produces for us belief in the word of God. Not all of the things that God promised to Abram are are for you and for me, but what has God promised for you and for me? Uh, We need to find that where? In the word of God. Okay, God appeared to Abram. He's not going to appear to me. He's not going to appear to you. He appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the perfect image of God, and he promised the sign of the resurrection, and that happened. So we look to the word of God for his promises to us. Uh, Faith produces in us obedience. Faith is followed by obedience. Perfection? No. Uh, We're growing. And the Bible says good trees who have been made good by the grace of God and salvation through Christ are going to produce good fruit. What, What has God's word called us to do? Am I obeying the commands of God? Faith produces obedience. Faith produces worship. Am I ascribing worth to God in everything I do? What does 1 Corinthians 1 say? Whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, do it all to the glory of God. Remember, worship is not just singing songs. Worship is not just showing up here on Sunday mornings. Worship is ascribing the worth that God has in my heart. And so everything that I do can be an act of worship when it's for him. And because of his holiness, because of his greatness, because of who he is, faith produces worship in us. And faith produces witness. Is my love, is my worship, my obedience, my belief in the word of God being seen by others? Uh, Realize, this kind of witness is not the same thing as passing out gospel tracts or going through the Romans road. Keep doing all that, by the way. Right? Because that's part of that faith in exercise too. But this kind of witness is simply the result of the reality that if you are Christ's, you will be different. You will be different than those around you. Abram changed when God saved him. And there was no way of that change not being seen by his family and the others who met him. And I'm sure not everyone who, you know, sold them a donkey or a sheep or whatever heard the whole story, right? Not every time. (laughs) 
But people knew. People knew and saw that he was different. Abram was different than the people of Ur. He was different than the people of Haran and now the people of Canaan. Not originally, but after God got involved, he was. He was different. And church, we should be different than many of the people that we know and meet in Mount Pleasant in this area, in this state, in this country. We should be different. Uh, We may not have any human sacrifices to moon gods going on around us, right? Sometimes it's harder to see the difference. Having uh, Being in a place that has a history of a Judeo-Christian type of a culture, but there's a difference. It's still there. Uh, We may not have too many people listening to tree leaves, though that may be happening on an increasing uh, level, right? But there are plenty of people who do not know Jesus Christ. And we might be shocked to know how many of them know very little. You know, we sometimes take it for granted that everybody knows what the Bible says, and it's really not true. A lot of people have no idea. And think about this now. When we're teaching kids in Sunday school growing up about Abraham, how many kids have grown up in the church being taught how great Abraham is and to be just like Abraham? There may be all kinds of people who know what church looks like and know how to be good like Abraham was good or like Daniel was good or like David was good, but not have a clue about the God who made that possible and who gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for their sin and for our sin to bring us to salvation. And so be careful that we would think the world around us gets church or gets Jesus and doesn't want anything to do with it. They might have an idea of who Jesus is, an idea of what church is, and hate that, but not really know Christ. And so we need to be Christ for them. And when we love him sincerely, they'll see it. It'll be a way for us to speak the truth to them. So, may the faith, the belief, the obedience, the worship of the people of our church be so sincere and so obvious that we can't help but point people to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we look to him and not to ourselves as our source of hope, our source of strength, our righteousness. Not me being righteous, Christ's righteousness being put to my account, right? May that be true because he is the one who is faithful. God is the one who is long-suffering. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is our hero. And he is worthy of all honor and praise. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. God, we thank you that you are a God who has a perfect plan and takes up a man like Abram in his sin and in his life and where he was headed and changes his heart. Because, God, we also know then that you're a God that takes a sinner like me, sinners like us, and gives us grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and salvation in him. God, thank you for your grace that you have given to us. And, God, may we be so moved with gratitude and thanks and love for you 
so that we, even in the midst of hardships, rejoice and have rest and peace. God, that we in the land that you have put us in around the people that you've put us around may also exemplify your love and your goodness, that people would see in us a sincerity and a love for you that can't not be noticed. That, God, we would be faithful in that opportunity to preach the truth, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, because your name is worthy of all praise from every tongue that you've created. God, help us to honor and glorify you in our lives. And we thank you for your goodness to us in all of these things. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.